remain standing for our gospel lesson, also the sermon text from John chapter 18. Give your ear to God's gospel. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. Then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. Thus far the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let's pray. Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight this Lord's Day as we meditate on this passage from John. We pray this in the name of Jesus and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it is good to see all your faces. Today, we embark on the final major section of this book. We enter the climax of John's gospel. The whole book has been leading us to and laying the groundwork for the arrest, trial, death, and resurrection of Christ. And one of the things John aims to communicate is that the climax of his gospel is also the hinge point of history. World history turns on the cross. In chapter 17, before entering into the Garden of Gethsemane with his disciples, Jesus had stopped to pray for himself a little bit at the beginning, but mainly for his church, his disciples, including those who were yet to even uh, believe, including those who were yet to be born who did not exist. 
He prayed for you on the eve of his crucifixion. He prayed for all who would ever put their trust in him. And then verse 1 of chapter 18 says, When Jesus had spoken these words, probably not just referring to the, to the prayer, but probably going back to chapter 14, these words that he's been speaking to his disciples called the farewell discourse, his, his last speech, his last teaching to his disciples. After he had spoken those things, including the prayer in John 17, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Verse 2, and, G- and Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. Verse 3, then Judas, having received a detachment, of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. The, the brook Kidron is a small, intermittent stream just outside of Jerusalem, directly east of the temple. And after crossing this brook, Jesus and his disciples ascend the, the slopes of the, the Mount of Olives to a garden in the Mount of Olives area that had been a regular meeting place for Jesus and his disciples. This garden was probably owned by a wealthy Jesus supporter who had set it aside for their use, for Jesus and his disciples' use. According to verse 2, they retreated to this garden regularly enough that Judas not only knew the place, but we're going to find out he knew that this is where Jesus would be. Now, before we continue to walk through this passage, we need to to just stop for a few minutes and we need to see what John is up to, what John is doing in these first, even just in these first three verses. So far, He's made two theologically significant moves. First, John skips over the agonizing prayers of Jesus, remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane. The ones that he repeated to to the Father, those repeated requests to the Father, that if there's any way to avoid my drinking this cup, please take it away. This cup of God's wrath that Jesus is agonizing about. Now the other gospel writers record these prayers of anguish for us. For example, let me read Luke 22 verses 39 to 46. Which is what happens between verses 2 and 3 of John 18. Luke says, Jesus went out as usual to the Mount of Olives. Remember Gethsemane is in the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. On reaching the place, he said to them, Pray that you will not fall into temptation. He withdrew about a stone's throw beyond, knelt down and prayed. And we know from other gospel accounts that three of his disciples went with him a stone's throw away. He knelt down and prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. And John was one of those three that went with him, probably hearing him pray to some extent when he wasn't sleeping. An angel from heaven appeared to him and strengthened him. 
And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. When he rose from prayer and went back to the disciples, he found them asleep, exhausted from sorrow. Why are you sleeping, he asked them. Get up and pray so that you will not fall into temptation. So that's, that's what happened between verses 2 and 3 of John 18, which raises the question, why does John leave this out? Why doesn't John record the anguish of Jesus in the garden? Why doesn't he tell us about these agonizing prayers, agony that led Jesus to ask the Father to spare him from his, from his mission, from, his, from God's wrath, agony so intense that it caused Jesus to sweat great drops of blood. Now, of course, John knew about it. It wasn't that, that he was ignorant of this event. He, he was aware of these prayers. In fact, he was there when it happened. The, and, and we shouldn't imagine that John is, is somehow embarrassed you know, that, that he fell asleep. That's not, that's not what's going on here. The reason John doesn't record this important event is that he's simply got a different focus. Remember, he's, he's the one who also says at the end of his book that if, if everything that he did was, was recorded, there wouldn't be enough books to contain it. So he's got he's to pick and choose what he's going to say, what he's going to write about, what he's going to include in his gospel account. And rather than emphasizing the suffering of Christ in the garden, John, by the direction of the Holy Spirit, chose to highlight the sovereign control that Jesus maintains throughout his arrest, trial, and crucifixion. We're going to see that as we, as we continue on. Jesus never stops being the all-powerful king and creator of all things. He was controlling everything, even when he was being arrested and bound by these soldiers. So John presents the divine strength of Jesus rather than the human weakness of Jesus. He wants to make it clear that he's telling a story of triumph rather than tragedy. Far from seeing Jesus as a helpless victim at the mercy of this mob, the Apostle John presents Jesus as one whose sovereign lordship over all things was in fact dramatically on display in the events of Maundy Thursday and Good Friday. Jesus exhibited his kingship and his absolute control even as he submitted himself to death by crucifixion. He showed himself to be the sovereign king especially, not even though, especially as he submitted to death by crucifixion. And this has very encouraging implications for us, doesn't it? Despite appearances, there's no event in your life outside the sovereign lordship of Jesus Christ, of King Jesus. He's always the ruling and reigning king. Jesus orchestrates every event in your life, even as he orchestrated every event in his own life, all the way up to his death. And this is important to remember when the principalities and the powers appear to be getting the upper hand, when the forces of evil seem to be gaining 
momentum, when it feels as though your enemies or your suffering, your afflictions, might get the last word. So that's the first theological move that John makes. He begins to portray Jesus as God Almighty, as the reigning and ruling king over all things, even during his own suffering and death. The second unique thing that John does is he introduces the word garden. Now you may be thinking, wait a minute. All, you know, I just, you just said all four Gospels speak of Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. How is this unique to John? Well, John is unique in that he's the only one to use the word garden. Matthew and Mark refer to Gethsemane. Luke, as I read, refers to the Mount of Olives where Gethsemane, Gethsemane was, is. But none of the other three gospel writers, not Matthew, Mark, or Luke, uses the word garden to refer to the Garden of Gethsemane. In fact, this might surprise you, the full name, Garden of Gethsemane, never occurs anywhere in the Bible. And only John refers to this place as a garden. So what do you, what do you think John's purpose is here in introducing this word? John is suggesting a contrast between the Garden of Eden, where the first Adam's actions end in tragedy, and the Garden of Gethsemane, where the second Adam's actions lead to triumph. Many preachers and teachers, going back to the early church fathers, have noted the symbolic and theological connection between the two gardens, Eden and Gethsemane, and the two Adams, Adam and Christ. The first Adam began his life in a garden. The second Adam, Jesus, came to a garden at the end of his life. The first Adam brought death into the world in a garden. The second Adam brought life into the world in a garden. In Eden, the human race was lost. In Gethsemane, Jesus announced, Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. There in verse 9 of our text. In Eden, the swords of the cherubim were drawn. In Gethsemane, the sword of Peter was put back into its sheath. In Eden, Adam willingly took the forbidden fruit from the hand of Eve. In Gethsemane, Christ willingly took the cup of wrath from the hand of his father. We could go on. There's also a way in which the two gardens are the same. So those are contrasts that I made there. There's there's an important way in which they are the same. Both gardens had a betrayer. Each garden has its betrayer. Judas is not the first man in Scripture to be disloyal to God in a garden. And Adam, the entire human race, betrayed God in a garden. And like Adam's betrayal, Judas' betrayal was inspired and engineered by Satan, by the deceiver, by the serpent. In verse 3, Judas is depicted as the leader of this crowd. Did you notice that? 
It's made up of Jews and Gentiles. There were probably at least a couple hundred. Some have estimated upwards of 600. It's based on the the language that's used to describe this, this detachment, having a commander, that sort of thing. Probably at least 200 just Roman troops were close to it, not counting the Jewish officials that were there. And Judas is the head, theologically at least here. And that's significant since we learn in verse 12, the end of our passage, that the detachment of troops had a commander, a captain, a leader, a head. And verse 3 is worded to make it clear that the real captain, the real head of these Jews and Gentiles is Judas. So theologically, Judas, the betrayer, is the representative of the whole world. Jews and Gentiles alike, even as Adam, the betrayer, was the covenant head of all humanity. So in one sense, Judas is an Adam figure in this scene, in this garden. But in a more important sense, Jesus is the new and greater and faithful Adam. It shouldn't be hard to accept this typology, this intended connection between the two gardens, the two Adams, the two betrayals. After all, remember, we're in John's gospel. And John begins his gospel by alluding to the book of Genesis, the first sentence of the book of Genesis. In fact, he uses the same language that the Greek translation of the book of Genesis uses at the beginning of his gospel. So Genesis 1.1 says, In the beginning, God created. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word. So, so the gospel of John is a new Genesis. John writes of a new creation inaugurated by the redemptive work of the new Adam, the God-man. And in John 18, John 19, and John 20, as we'll see in coming weeks, this new Adam is arrested in a garden, as we've already seen, crucified in a garden, and resurrected in a garden. And John makes it explicit each time. John 19, 41, going ahead, says, Now in the place where he was crucified, there was a garden. And in the garden, says it twice, there was a new tomb in which no one had yet been laid. John 20, 15, Jesus said to Mary Magdalene, this is right after his resurrection, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom do you seek? She, supposing him to be the gardener, spoke to him. In John 18 to 20, the garden becomes the place of redemption rather than revolt. Jesus is reversing Eden. It becomes the place of great reversal. Jesus transforms the biblical garden from a place of cursing into a place of blessing. And then at the end of the Bible, the end of Revelation, we see that in the new heavens and the new earth is is a new garden. It's a new garden city because of what Christ has done in reversing the curse. 
So in the first garden, paradise is lost. In the garden of John 18, 19, and 20, paradise is regained. In the first garden, death was born out of life. In the second garden, life was born out of death, the death of Christ. In Genesis, God removed the man from the garden. In John, God enters the garden himself as the new man so that he can surrender to the curse for the sake of man. This symbolism isn't unplanned or coincidental. Jesus didn't have to go to a garden to get arrested. He could, have, he could have put himself into the hands of the authorities without even leaving Jerusalem if he had wanted. No, he, he's in control of what's going on here from start to finish. And now we can see, we can begin to see how, how the two theological points, John's two theological interests converge. Jesus is not only the sovereign God and king who controls when and where and how he is arrested and tried and killed. He's also the sovereign God and king who, on his way to the cross, is able to create a theologically rich and instructive link between himself and the first Adam. Between the Garden of Eden and the Garden of Gethsemane. So he's, he's doing typology for us, making connect, theological connections for us, even as he makes his way to the cross. Jesus is orchestrating everything all the time. It was true before he went to the cross. It was true during his crucifixion and the trial leading up to it. It's true now. And he's doing all of it for our salvation, for our good. And so I ask you, if, if Jesus was in complete control when he was falsely accused, unfairly tried, and then murdered, should you ever doubt that he's in complete control of your undesirable circumstances, of your lot in life, if that's how you think about it? Well, we've made it through John's introduction. And I should note that this passage, it, it does contain the elements of a basic narrative. It's got an introduction, and then a conflict, and then a resolution, actually two resolutions, as we're about to see, and then a conclusion, concluding statement. Verse, verses 1 to 3 contain the introduction. There, John, we just saw, looked at those verses. John provides the setting. He tells us the, the location. Most of the characters are introduced and the evil intentions of, of Judas and the Roman soldiers and the Jewish officers. Verses 4 to 9 describe the conflict, which is centered on Jesus and his arrest. In verses 10 to 11... The conflict is answered with a twofold resolution. Peter tries his hand at a resolution, literally in verse 10, but it turns out to be a false resolution. Then in verse 11, Jesus brings true resolution to the conflict. 
And finally, in verse 12, John concludes the narrative and transitions to the following passage, which we'll look at next week. So since we've already covered the introduction, let's move to the conflict in verses 4 to 9. Verse 4, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with him. And when he said to them, I am, they drew back and fell to the ground. And he asked them again, Who are you, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I have told you that I am. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying, or the word, might be fulfilled which he spoke. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. The phrase in verse 4, upon him, upon him there in verse 4 is loaded with significance. Uh, Unfortunately, a lot of the translations don't translate this phrase woodenly. Uh, The New King James Version does, and, and it's, and it's better for it. For it, All things that would come upon him, in verse 4, refers to the sins of the world that were placed upon Jesus. Isaiah 53, verse 5, says this, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him, same phrase, was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds... We are healed. So the Greek version of what I just read there, the Greek version of Isaiah 53, 5, uses the same Greek phrase that John 18, 4 uses for upon him. Jesus knows that God's wrath on the sin of mankind is about to be placed squarely upon him as it was prophesied by Isaiah and others. The entire scene that follows serves as an illustration of John's statement all the way back in chapter 1, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it or understand it. In verse 5, John makes a point to tell us that Judas stood on the side of of darkness on the side of the authorities and the powers of Rome and Jerusalem. The soldiers and Jewish officers represent the whole world, which is made up of Jews and Gentiles. Judas represented also another dimension, another authority, if you will, the satanic powers, the spiritual forces of darkness, which, which at this point are fully in control of him. So it's not only Jesus against the world, it's also Jesus against the devil. And yet none of them have any power over Jesus. From the moment they arrive in in the garden, Jesus is the one doing the arresting and the binding and the subjugating, the leading of the conversation. In verse 6, we get a preview of the end of all things when every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, as Philippians 2 says. 
Their falling to the ground was, was a more fitting response than they realized, right? And it demonstrates that all of these officers and soldiers are impotent before Christ. They'll only be able to do what Jesus allows them to do in this moment. Even though there's hundreds of them. So these hundreds of men who came to take his life are powerless to make any claim on him. The great mass of men is outnumbered by one. The whole world is no match for the God-man Jesus Christ. And then in verses 7 and 8, the narrative is infused with a little comedy. Verses 7 and 8 repeat the events of verses 4 to 6 and nearly their exact sequence. John subtly captures the humor of the situation, the comedy of the situation. For example, in verse 7, when Jesus repeats his initial question, whom do you seek? Think about where we are. We're, we're left to wonder, is, is everyone still on the ground? You know, when he's asking this question. That's where verse 6 leaves them. And are they on the ground when they repeat their answer? Jesus of Nazareth? Or, or alternatively, do they stand up and you know, compose themselves and attempt to regain their dignity before they answer the question yet again? You see, Jesus has never been more in control than he is now. His hour of death is his hour of death. He lays down his life. He will take it up again. No one takes it from him. It'll happen on his authority, not on the authority of the Jews or the Gentiles or even Satan himself. Jesus is in charge. Jesus identifies himself as I am three times in this passage. Once in verse 5, again in verse 6, and then a third time in verse 8, as you'll notice. And our, our translations add the word he to I am, so that it says I am he. But the Greek is, is more ambiguous than our English I am he. Jesus is not merely saying, I'm, I'm the one you're, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. You know, it is I. He's also identifying himself as I am the God of Israel. In verse 8, Jesus emphasizes their interest in him so that they'll let his disciples go on their way. And in doing this, Jesus saves them physically from the persecution of the mob, and this illustrates the spiritual salvation that he'll accomplish for them by going to the cross in their place. So the real fulfillment of that verse is his not losing any of them um, to hell, to eternal damnation. But here we get an illustration of that in his physical protection of them. So in verse 8, Jesus removes the wrath of the world from his disciples 
and places it solely on himself. But on the following day, on Good Friday, he'll remove the wrath of God from the disciples and place it solely on himself. No one, not even the most faithful disciple, can help Jesus bear the sins of the world. Notice in verse 9 that John equates the word of Jesus with the word of God. The beginning of verse 9 literally says, so that the word, some translations say, so that the saying, which is fine, but it's the word logos, so that the word which he said might be fulfilled. The phrase, so that it might be fulfilled, is used elsewhere in John and elsewhere in the New Testament to describe the fulfillment of the Old Testament. Old Testament scriptures are fulfilled. The word of God is fulfilled using this phrase. What this means is that the word of Jesus is on par with the inspired word of God. So when Jesus speaks, it's God speaking. The words of Christ can be prefaced with thus saith the Lord. Well, we've come to the end of the conflict section, but we've seen here that the conflict is less about what the mob is trying to do or will do to Jesus and more about what he is doing and what he is accomplishing for the world. Not what the world will do to him, but what he will do for the world. Ed Klink expounds this truth with clarity and power. I'm going to quote him. He says that this passage beckons the reader to see and understand that God is always at work in the world and is always in control. With the rest of Scripture, this passage, pericope passage, exhorts belief in the plans and purposes of God, even when the historical circumstances seem dire or seem to lack divine intention. Are you ever in a situation like that where it seems the situation is dire and that there's no real divine intention in what is going on around you? He continues, For although the Jews and Romans thought they had performed their duties by capturing Jesus, the very same act was more accurately the perfect performance of the duties of the Son for the Father. Let me read that again. For although the Jews and Romans thought they had performed their duties by capturing Jesus, the very same act was more accurately the, the, the perfect performance of the duties of the Son for the Father. Father, not for capturing, but for freeing. Not for capturing, but for freeing the children of God from the bonds of sin. O church, trust in the plans and purposes of God, no matter how things may at first appear, end quote. That's the the main application of today's passage. Trust in the plans and purposes of Almighty God, no matter how things may at first appear. When the world or your enemies or perhaps your friends are trying to destroy you the way the world and Jesus' friend Judas tried to destroy him, trust in the plans and purposes of God, no matter how things may 
at first appear. When the enemy goes after your reputation or your livelihood or your relationships, trust in the plans and purposes of God to the bitter end, no matter how things appear at any moment along the way. Well, every good story answers its conflict with a resolution. Peter misreads the nature of the conflict, and so he offers an extremely misguided resolution. He sees the conflict in terms of what the world is doing to Jesus rather than what Jesus is doing for the world. And in the grip of this confusion, Peter grabs his sword, probably a long knife dagger, and cuts off the right ear of Malchus, who is the high priest's servant. Peter's action, while no doubt heartfelt, and in some ways we could say courageous, I guess, painfully reveals the more fundamental conflict that needs resolution. So rather than bringing resolution, he actually shows, he demonstrates that there's a deeper conflict that needs to be resolved. The true conflict is a spiritual one that can't be resolved with a sword. To borrow Paul's terminology from 2 Corinthians 10, the weapons of Christ's warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. Paul actually says that about us. Our weapons of warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. But it was true of Christ first. The main weapon of Christ's warfare is actually his cross. The cross is not the world's weapon against Jesus. So the cross is not the world's weapon against Jesus. It's his weapons against the evil strongholds. And so Jesus is teaching us how to fight. How to fight what our spiritual warfare looks like and what it does not look like. The resolution of the true conflict would require not the cutting off of Malchus's ear, but the cutting off of the Messiah. As Daniel 9:26 prophesies, the servant of the high priest couldn't resolve anything. No amount of mutilation of him could resolve anything. The servant of the Lord, the true high priest himself, had to bring resolution. Christ was cut off. He made himself nothing. He humbled himself. He became obedient to death, even death on a cross, so that those who believe in him could be given every spiritual blessing that heaven has to offer. That's the resolution that Jesus is working toward. That's the battle that Jesus is fighting. So he commands Peter in verse 11, put your sword into the sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? He's teaching Peter how to fight in this warfare, this spiritual warfare. 
the cup is a symbol of suffering in general, but of the wrath of God more particularly. Earlier in the evening, Jesus had asked the Father if the cup could be taken away from him. Is there any way that we can accomplish this thing without my having to drink this cup, this awful cup? He was told no. And now he conveys to his apostle, Peter, God's will on the matter. I must drink the cup of suffering and wrath that my father has given to me. He's resolved to do it. The cup wasn't given to him by the Roman soldiers. The cup wasn't given to him by these Jewish officers. It wasn't given to him by, their, by the commander that was with the troops. It wasn't given to him by Judas. It wasn't given to him by Satan. Only the Father had the authority to give him this cup. Jesus wasn't arrested in verse 12 because the mob somehow overpowered him. He had overpowered them, hundreds of them, and, had forced, and he had even forced them to the ground simply by his powerful words without laying a hand on them. No, Jesus was arrested because he surrendered himself to them. And his surrender to them was ultimately his surrendering to the will of the Father. Verse 12 adds adds a piece of information that we didn't know about yet. Adds a list, adds a character to the list. We found out that there's a captain or a commander But the true commander of the whole situation is God. Jesus and his Father are commanding every move. They're orchestrating every detail of this scene. The binding of Jesus in verse 12 is the binding of a voluntary sacrifice. Like the binding of Isaac in Genesis 22 The binding of Jesus is not by force. He's not trying to escape it. He's going willingly, without resistance. It's a self-sacrifice. This conflict, you see, has turned into a conquest. The conflict has become a conquest. What What appears to be a tragedy is actually a comedy. The one being arrested and bound is God Almighty, the King of heaven and earth, the creator of those who are arresting him and binding him. Before these men existed, Jesus had foreordained that they would do this for his purposes. As Peter puts it in Acts 2.23, Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It was a definite plan that had everything planned out in detail. So Gethsemane was not a tragedy. And neither are your Gethsemanes. The cross was not a tragedy and neither is your cross. Behind every affliction, behind every groaning are the perfect plans and purposes 
of God. Darkness may be all around you. Sorrow may be weighing down your soul as it weighed down our Savior's soul. And it may seem as though the whole world is against you, but never stop trusting in the plans and purposes of God, which are being worked out both for you and through you. So your duty, in light of this passage, your calling, and really it's your joy and your privilege, is to be willing to drink whatever cup, whatever cup of suffering God has for you. Surrender your will to God by taking from God's hand the cup that he's assigned to you. Do it for the joy set before you. You see, there's joy in doing this. Christ was not joyless in John 18 and 19. And Christ has given us an example in doing this. He's, he's set an example for us for how to do this, how to accept our cups, our crosses, how to fight in the warfare. The good life isn't the one that escapes death and suffering and sacrifice and difficulty. The cross that God has for you is a burden that will bring joy and peace with it. So may your food be to do the will of God. May your food and drink be to do the will of your Father. The cup God has for you, while it may be full of trials and sorrow, will turn out to be the only drink that truly satisfies. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so grateful that you sent your Son to drink the cup of wrath that we should have had to drink for eternity. And we thank you, Jesus, for being willing to die in our stead. Help us to imitate you, Lord Jesus, to take up our cross, to take the cup that we've been given, and to do it faithfully with courage. Teach us how to fight in the warfare that you've put us in. We thank you, King Jesus, for your righteous and perfect rule of heaven and earth. We entrust ourselves to you today and ask for your help in living faithfully in your kingdom as your people, your blood-bought people. We ask this in your name, the name of Jesus Christ, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, amen.